So we walked down the waterfront in Palma and we said, oh, which pier do you want to pick? So if we're looking at each other, so, oh, let's start with this one. It looks like it's a nice schooner at the end of it. That would be lovely to get on a sailboat. So we walked the end of it and there was um, a famous boat um, named Talia. Welcome to the Your Skipper podcast, bringing you stories from captains and industry professionals working with super yachts, charter boats, and private yachts around the world. Whether your love is sail or power. And now your host, a super yacht captain for over 20 years who has been sailing since he was eight, Cameron Springthorpe. Hi, thanks for joining me today. This is the third episode of the Your Skipper podcast, and it's great to see there are already quite a lot of people listening. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Kaylin to you. Kaylin has been a friend since we did our master's tickets together at Warsash quite a few years ago. Originally from Romania and equipped with a degree in psychology, he realised he wanted to explore the world and started his boating career as a waiter on cruise ships. He now has a wide range of experience as mate and captain on various super yachts and has also managed to fulfil a long-held desire to have his own cruising yacht which he cruises for half the year. I hope you enjoy hearing his story as much as I did. And if you have a moment, please make sure you are subscribed so you get each episode. Also, I know every podcaster says it, but I'd really appreciate it if you did share or rate my podcast. You might even be the first, and I'd be very grateful. So, on with the interview. Kaylin, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Cameron. Good to uh, catch up with you over the phone. And um, even though some hundreds of kilometers are separating us now, we'll see if I can make this uh, this work. Um, yeah, indeed. Um, psychology, although it is part of yachting, it's not a, True. a requirement True. to get in. Um, <laughs> in my past, uh, two boats in yachting um, was quite a, quite a curvy one because, um, as you know, I originally come from Romania and it's, we do have the Black Sea, um, a bit of a shore there, but it's... Uh, I grew up right in the middle of the country, close to mountains. So, uh, growing up near okay. dinghies and sailing, and and that that was not part of my childhood. Um, so, uh, yeah, without uh, you know getting into a full life story here, um, after about a year and a half of um, of a psychology degree, I I realised that uh, I just I had itchy feet and I wanted to see see the world a bit. So. They kind of got me out of Romania, and, and I started traveling. And it wasn't um, uh, long before I um, I found boats and ships, and I found it quite fascinating, and I, and I thought I'd give it a go. Um, and my path, and I started actually on, on cruise liners. I worked for Royal Caribbean. That's how I started oh, okay. going afloat. Yeah, yeah. So that was quite interesting because it's quite a melting pot. and. From a um, young fella coming out of a ex-communist country to uh, be out there mixing with people from all over, and we all spoke this funny English, bit of a pigeon English back then, because uh, you got all sorts um, on those ships, and um, yeah, that's how it all kind of started. What were you doing on the cruise ship? Well, I pretty much got in as a as a waiter in the restaurant because that was the easiest way in, um, and uh, that kind of got me 
going because as you know you're young and enthusiastic and you want to get going and um uh that was the easiest way in to give me an idea of, of the okay. life on board so it was fascinating yeah and did you then uh, work your way up in rank on the cruise ships or did you how did you get make the switch over to, to the yachting side of things not at all actually uh i did uh, a couple of contracts and um that as much as it was interesting having that life on board it's like a floating city as you know um again you know i i wanted to to see what what's out there um and uh i ended up spending some time in florida and traveling actually across usa between the east and west coast a bit and and basically just just traveling as as i was in my early 20s and uh, uh florida it's what got me into into yachts and i remember it was late mid late 90s and uh i was alongside australians and south africans and kiwis and we were all sanding away and painting boats up uh, near river um and uh that's how i basically got close to to the yachts and that's how i got into it so what was your first job on on yachts then my first jobs were um I was a painter finisher in uh, actually New River or Rosciolli. Those were the two yards that we used to work back then. Uh, and then occasionally we started moving yachts, you know, from one yard to the other um, as they were being brought to the yard. We're talking small sailboats and uh, and sports fishers. That's what the type of boats that we're dealing with. And um, yeah, it was basically moving them um, around Fort Lauderdale and between the marinas and bringing them up in the yard for painting. And um, that's when I met uh, probably um, the guy that kind of steered me towards this career. And uh, I was a gentleman, I was a world traveler. He was um, a marine biologist uh, originally from Kenya, and he was working, painting other people's boats to fix his sailboat to take it to New Zealand. Um, so we worked alongside for months before I realized that um, you might need crew to sail to New Zealand. So that's what all kind of started. All right. So that sounded good. I kind of knew um, about four or five months before departure that um, I was about to embark in one of the most amazing journeys of my life. Um, yeah. Leaving Florida and heading to New Zealand yeah. five, six months down the line. That's what we we're kind of planning at the time was June. Uh, 99 and uh, we were trying to get down to New Zealand uh, before Christmas and hopefully see the America's Cup down there uh, as it was happening as you know down in Auckland and uh, yeah so that's that's how I got my, my first uh, you know long range blue water because on cruise ships is not really blue water is it when you work on those things but um, sailing sure. halfway across the halfway around the world on a on a wee, whatever there was, fourteen meter um, catch. There was a, there was a different kind of animal. Yeah, quite a small boat. Good way to get to know whether you like sailing or not. Absolutely, I did, <laughs> to find out if I'm going to be seasick or not. To be honest, because uh, I I never got seasick before that ever being on a boat, and this was going to be the true test. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I'm one of those fortunate people that doesn't get seasick and um the same with the guy 
um, who are on the boat, who, you know, as I said, who became mates down the line, but um, he never got seasick either. And uh, we had a jolly great time for five and a half months. Um, we were joined by a couple of his friends from different leagues, but uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it was fascinating. Well, I'm very envious because uh, I, I certainly do get seasick, but then I um, I take solace out of the fact I think it was Nelson that used to get seasick as well. So I think, well, that's okay. If, um... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's only in certain conditions, so that's it's never stopped me. <laughs> it's all of those, you know. Was it? If it doesn't kill you, it really makes you stronger, isn't it? That's what I often like hear. <laughs> Well, you know, sailors that do get seasick, but they love it and they keep coming back to it. So, yeah. Uh, so you arrived out in New Zealand on the little catch, and yeah. is that when that's presumably when you started making New Zealand um, your new home? Uh, no, not really. At, at the time, as I said, you know, I was I was just travelling. Um, I didn't think twice. Um, well, I actually did think twice, but twice it came out that is the right thing to do popping on this boat um and uh later i keep coming back to this experience and and how fortunate i was to actually do this with um with this guy because his background um uh it was it was tremendous he used to uh work out in the bush in Africa. He actually uh, led one of the South African expeditions down to Antarctica for 14 months. So he had lots of stories to tell us to, about that as well. So he was a very organized guy and he kind of, he was very good at, at planning things and, and the basis of how to prepare a boat for a voyage like this was actually were laid down way back then from this guy. So overall it was a, was a fantastic early opportunity to um to get it right you know so i think i was very fortunate with, with that um yeah that's halfway across i remember i think it must have been a tour motors they actually came across this beautiful 120 130 footer it was it was um was a schooner rigged super yacht they were actually going down from they were coming from new york and they were going down for uh, the America's Cup in Auckland as well. So uh, they were actually the first introduction to super yachting because we got, we befriended them and uh, they were just the crew. They were having the time of their lives, really, um, taking the boat crew only across the Pacific to uh, be ready for, for the owners in Auckland. Um, so that penny dropped then and, and that's how I kind of came back to it years after. Uh, and got into super yachts. But, um, uh, yeah, that was the first teaser on what super yacht life must be like. It was a bit deceiving because these guys were just yes. only <laughs> four weeks, uh, you know, journey of a lifetime in yachting to, to do a trip like that. Um, yes. But they made it clear back then too that, you know, this is not the norm. It's actually a, <laughs> it's hard work. And, um, but, you know, it's, it was it was enough to uh, again put it in my brain and think, oh, you know, this this could work down the line. Um, but now New Zealand. To go back to your question, New Zealand was a. Uh, I was just travelling at a time, and uh, I was just going to have a look down under um, 
again, because I didn't quite grasp that I was halfway around the world in the southern hemisphere, which I never thought I would, um, just, you know, a year before that. And, um, I was really enjoying the ride. Yeah. So it was just, um, after traveling there and, and, um, getting involved with Otago University and, and a project of, uh, was actually with, with the same guy that I sailed from the States. He said, Hey, look, I'm going to do my doctorate through Otago University down south and I'm going to be, uh, starting the, uh, bottlenose dolphin population in, uh, Fjordland National Park. So what do you think? You want to join for this? So, uh, again, you know, why not? This is a, wow, New Zealand's greatest national park, 14 fjords, um, 3 million hectares of almost untouched. Um, land and it's just stunning down there. A bit, you know, it's the Tasman, it's exposed, it's weather times can play a game, but it's an amazing area that a lot of Kiwis don't get to see it. Um, they, most people see Milford Sound or Doubtful, but all the others are hard to get to. So that was again an amazing opportunity that I just could not turn down. No, sure. So was that on the, on the same 14 meter catch? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same one. Yeah, yeah. So, um, nice. it's kind of continuing, continuing the legend. Uh, so we took it down there from Auckland and we prepared it, uh, put a, a big heater in and get ready, batten down the hatches for, for fuel and rain. But, um, it was just, uh, an amazing three years of my life. Um, going up and down those 14 fjords with Dave and, um, at times we had different students from university and some doing acoustics, some doing, um, you know, supporting evidence of behavior stuff. And Dave was just looking at, at numbers and distribution, but, um, and we did a lot of photo IDing and, and that's what we were doing down there. But, um, wow. it was just, it, it was amazing. That sounds incredible. So three years there, we must be in 2002. What came next? That, that's right. And at the time, well, to be able to do this, obviously I need to, I had to organize my paperwork in New Zealand, um, for a, a work permit. And I did that through them, through Otago University and, and with, with Dave. And then, um, at the time, you know, if you stayed enough in New Zealand and, um, you had enough schooling, you could apply through a point system to, to get residency. I remember at the time looking at the New Zealand immigration and they were, they had like a, seven, eight year cycle that every seven, eight years, they would make it a bit easier to get in. And then they would tighten the rules again. And so I was again, fortunate that I got it. It was easier to, to get in. Uh, and that's how I, uh, got my permanent residency and next was the passport. So again, this was another fantastic. Now I have a Kiwi passport as well as Romanian. Uh, cause traveling with a Romanian passport back in the nineties was a, was terrible. You had to sure. knock on doors and wait for visas and it's kind of what's happening with South Africans now. You know, it's, you got this big stamp on your forehead wherever you want to go. Everyone thinks that you want to emigrate there and I don't know, take the jobs yeah. from the locals and whatnot. And that's always for, for us, for Romanian passport holders back then. And so getting a Kiwi passport was, like ticket to freedom, really. Most people in the the Western world don't realize um, this sort of privilege that 
you know, you're born with a passport that allows you to go everywhere. Yes, we certainly do take that for granted. So now you've got your New Zealand passport. What's next? Next, I really, I really love the area. So once this three year the project was finished, I really wanted to stay, continue in the area. And uh, the only option in Fjordland was uh, um, get into commercial tourism. And uh, they used to be now they called uh, Real Journeys. Back then, the company used to be called uh, Fjordland Travel. Kiwis that that know um, South Island and, and Fjordland will remember those times and. I started working for Fuel and Travel at the time and on their tourist boats in Milford and I drove the uh, uh, the wee shuttle boat um, picking up all the Milford track walkers um, up the river there uh, for a bit and that that was uh, the, that, the the starting um, moments of my of my skippering career um, just about. Every other skipper that drives boats in Milford started on their boat, picking up uh, the, the Milford Trek walkers. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how we kind of progressed from there. Uh, and at the times, to be honest, I, and even now in yachting, I, I have these moments that, you know, growing up in a just about landlocked country, and I remember going down Milford Sound with, this boat's a tourist, you know, I had like 60, I think, tourists on the boat. And I would just look around to the stunning uh, landscape around me and I'll think like, well, that's amazing. I made it this far. So that's no stopping now. Yeah. So uh, there you go. The next one was the uh, best person in my life. I met Sonia, which, you know, you know her. Uh, she was working with the same company and yep. that's where I met her. You know, she's French, but she was doing... Uh, a New Zealand world tour. <laughs> Someone said, how about the super yachting thing? So, uh, yeah, next thing we are flying back to Europe and we got into super yachts. You, you say it just like that. It's not that easy to just, just, just get into super yachts. W- were you able to walk the docks with your backpack on and uh, and just ask for a job? Because um, I remember those were the days. But Well, I'll tell you an amazing story about how we got into yachting. Uh, well, the very first day we went day working, uh, as maybe some of the people that will be listening to this, they, they trying to get into this industry and some are in already, but they will remember the times of, uh, dock walking. And it was, um, 2007. And, uh, that's right. Cause America's Cup was happening in Valencia and, uh, we arrived in Palma. So we said, all right, let's see this super yachting thing. We put so much energy into tidying up our CVs and, and getting the white collar shirt and, you know, looking tidy, which it amazes me how many of the youngsters nowadays kind of miss that point. But um, anyway, back, in, yeah. back then. So we walked down uh, the waterfront in Palma and we said, oh, which pier do you want to pick? So if we're looking at each other, so oh, let's tell with this one. looks like it's a nice... Um, schooner at the end of it that would be lovely to get on a sailboat and um so we worked at the end of it and there was um a famous boat um named talia and the very first person was a, i remember it was a deckhand and he was i think we we're vanishing he was standing away or something and i said hey mate how you doing you know so uh, we're looking for work and whatnot and 
there you guys isn't any crew and just the usual. And he looks at me and says, oh, no, we don't. But then he noticed my polo. I had a, a Milford Town polo. I had something about Milford Town. that just say, oh, you've been, you know, Milford Town. And um say, yeah, I used to work there. Really? Um, for for who? And I said, well, Colin Travel. Really? Um, when? And I said, you know, the time. And I said, do you know um, Amanda, Amanda Cushion? And I said, yeah, she was, she was my direct boss. She was the overnight boat manager. That is my mum. <laughs> no way. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I knew of Jason um, from his mum uh, that he's in, in yachts and he's a very good sailor from from what I know. I've only met him on that occasion and one other time and you know we didn't get into yachting with with his direct help back then but um, it was just another one of those things that this is just kind of weird but it's uh, it kind of feels right so um, yeah but that was the very first experience um, uh, dock walking and trying to get in super yachts Right, you know, halfway around the world, yeah. he yeah. bumped into the one son that this lady that was my uh, my direct boss in Milford Town was. So, uh, yeah, it was quite uh, <laughs> amazing. Quite uh, all those moments in life, yeah. Uh, do you know Antares at all? I do. Antares, uh, who is probably a, would be a good, uh, um, interesting guy for you to talk with uh, on one of these podcasts. Yeah, he's um, on. He's on my list. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I actually work with Antares on my current boat on Pure Bliss. Um, I started working last December and he basically uh, hired myself and Sonia as uh, their counterpart in the rotational job. So, yeah, I don't know Antares. We established that that day in 2007 when we asked Jason for a, if there's any, any work on Talia. Antares was on board. Yeah, oh, he's, um, I haven't spoken to him for ages, but he's he's a good friend. Yeah, small world, tremendously small world. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so you you didn't get a job on Thalia that day, but um, but you went on to no, no, we did get some day work um, in those days, and um, it was actually through a, a contact of Sonia's. She did uh, uh, her SDCW, I think, back in Auckland. Uh, was some crew from Kokomo. Kokomo was in Palma in those days, and they needed some day work, and that's how we got our first sort of time on board. And that was on Kokomo, on the 52-meter Kokomo, on the very first one. Beautiful boat. Um, and, yes. Um, yeah, that was the very first uh, time we worked on a super yacht, and it was fascinating. And after that, we had, I think, uh, a bit more day work on, on some other boats, um, but there were kind of small gigs before I got a call to go to Holland and uh, hop on my first yacht. It was a 52-meter Hamels. Uh, so it was a motor yacht, but it was in Flissingen. And, um, yeah, welcome to Super Yachts. That was, I was a bosun on that. Because um, before leaving New Zealand, I actually went to Auckland and, did my chief mate uh, to Maritime School in Auckland. That was the, the very first um, super yacht full-time job that I got. Um, yeah, and that was on a brand new uh, Amels. Beautiful boat, and it was a good introduction to Dutch craftsmanship and 
how they do things down there, and I was really impressive. Um, and I kept coming back to that once I started dealing with uh, with Italian and and French shipyards and even US. It's kind of I still come back to my time with Amos, and it was like, well, that was a good time, and it's lovely the way they do things in Holland. That first summer was on uh, La Mirage, was called. Was that a couple's job working with Sonia? No, no, that's uh, that's tough. Um, as you know, for couples in yachting, uh, and we understood that early in the game that uh, it will be very tricky and it's not worth sitting on the side waiting for the boat that will take us both. And So we understood. We were advised by um, people in the industry that we knew and, and some of the agents. They say, you know, you first you got to build that reputation individually um, make a name for yourself and then we'll make it a lot easier to reunite reunite down the line um, obviously the the risk on on going apart is as you know many couples have drifted apart well and truly sure. once um, in yachting and trying to do this um, so you know we're not um, the type of people that gone one way or the other to say that oh you know we can't live apart at the same time we said uh, we'll have to be strong and and make it work and fortunately for us uh, we held it in one place our relationship over the years and despite having to do seasons apart but it was tough yeah it is yeah so when did you first start working together i think after la mirage i had uh was a good opportunity to get on Sarah and there was a 63 meter Amos again and that was a couple's job and that's why I moved on to that and there was a now I was moving up as well to second officer and um, um, unfortunately that winter we're in Barcelona and we both joined with Sonia and I had this you know we were bouncing with joy that we to get on a boat but the program really fell apart that winter because we were supposed to go to the Red Sea and then in the end there were some funds issues. Um, so the trip cancelled and the boat was going to spend the rest of the winter in Barcelona. And unfortunately, as enthusiastic as we were, they kind of quickly we ran out of steam as the program didn't really lead anywhere. So we actually, after I think two or three months, we said, you know, this is, we're not really going anywhere and it will start to take its toll on our morale as well. So we actually ended up, again, going separate, I think, for a few months, um, doing some temporary work. And yeah, I think I ended up on um, on an Ocean Co, uh, which was an interesting gig. There was also a second officer on Pegasus. It was at the time right after she changed name from Aviva 4 to, to Pegasus. Um, and it was only after Pegasus that the chief officer that I worked on Pegasus with um, he ended up on a Mavy and he called me if I want to join a Mavy uh, program. That's when I called Son, Sonia and I said, oh, you look, let's, uh, let's regroup again and get on a really big boat at the time. Maybe it was 80 and it felt huge. Um, and uh, yeah, that's when we got back together. It was actually on a, on a Mavy. Oh, I didn't realise you worked on her because um, she she spent a lot of winters here in um, Adriano, in Mallorca. Oh, yep, that's right. I was before that's before I worked on on a maybe before she started her 
Adriano time. Uh, when I joined, I joined in Tarragona after she was laid up there for the winter. And oh, I remember there was this coal factory there or something that the decks were just covered with this black stuff. It was horrible. Um, and she was very short staffed on that winter. And it was a mission to try and get the boat ready on that first, um, first season. And, uh, amazing as a Mavi was. And, uh, you know, as we know, a lot of people worked on a Mavi. Unfortunately, she had a tremendous crew turnover, especially lower ranks. Um, for us, it was, uh, it kind of ran hot and cold, um, cold due to this turnover and the low, low ranks and, you know, the other problems that were on board. But, um, overall, what was really hot is we spent just over a year on that and we still have friends from that time on Amoebe. It was an amazing group of people. And um, that's what I take from, them, from that experience was how you can get a team of whatever we were, 22, 24. And it's all, I have to give it to Marco. Marco Neal was his name, the chief officer at the time. Whoever knows him, they will know Marco. was quite a, uh, a very unique character. Um, and he was tremendous at putting a team together. Um, I haven't been in touch with him for some time now, but I should give him a, a shout, see what he's up to. But I learned a lot of lessons from, from Marco. He was, uh, he was my guiding light as an officer in the early days in, in yachting. And it was all, yeah, he put together an amazing team and it was all word of mouth and people that he knew or heard of. And he, he had an eye for, for putting a team together and covering not only obviously the job requirements, but the, Covering the dynamics, as, as you know, you get to 24, 23 people. Um, it doesn't have to be six nasties on board to uh, go pear-shaped or, you know, yeah. three personalities clashing. It only, it doesn't take much at all, but he was very good at, um, at, um, from the hiring stage, putting together a, a really good team and personalities that mix well and, and managing that as well. That was the second step in his approach. And very interesting guy. Very interesting guy. It's been lovely working with him too, yeah. When she was uh, based here in Adriano, it was skeleton crew over the winter. And then uh, they would crew up just before the season and then try and throw everything together again, ready for the season. That was tough. It was the same one that when we joined. I think there were five crew on board when we joined, and we were crewing up for the season, so there were a lot more to come. The bulk of the interior and bulk of the deck department was yet to be hired. But the chef for the season, because the, the sous chef was on holiday and the, the new head chef was not hired yet, and as numbers started to grow, you know, from five became eight and then ten, and I think we still had a crew of 13, 14, 15, and we still didn't have the head chef yet. And it was the chief engineer and Marco, the chief officer, they were doing the cooking. And it was hilarious because <laughs> uh, right. lunch could be anywhere between 11 and 2 o'clock. You didn't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Just get the call that, um, all right, guys, this lunch is ready. And you didn't know what to expect. It was all homemade <laughs> style by, by these two guys that were taking turns. And it was hilarious, but it was I mean, it's, you know, you wouldn't expect that from nowadays from an 80 meter boat, but at the time, it was just, we just had the time of our lives. It was great. You know, it was 
kind of full on to try and bring a boat up to speed, but it was hilarious. Sure. And when uh, is that atmosphere that you're all in it and you've got to make it work, but it's a good atmosphere, you're just you're amazing. It just in the end, it's happening. So where did you get your tickets? I did get my chief mates in New Zealand. So before I left New Zealand, I actually got my chief mates through the New Zealand system. And you can get the equivalency, basically, from the New Zealand system. And that's how I transfer that to um, to the UK Masters. That was accepted. So I don't have to do my um, chief mates again. You know, a lot of guys jump, used to jump from chief mates straight up to 3,000. At the time, I thought, you know, when I didn't have enough sea time for the Master 3000, I thought, oh, well, I had a chief mate, so I might as well go and set my 500 because um, you can only do good. You go through all the um, items again and you set another oral and it will just um, help prepare, you know, for the 3000 down the line. So I actually got my 500 and never used it. I was still a chief mate. Um, and then um, I got my Master 3000 and continued as a chief officer. And then I got my, my own drive. So um, I probably stayed quite a bit um, as a chief officer before getting my own drive. But again, you know, it's to do with opportunities and keeping our relationship alive with Sonia. There was... At different times through our, through our careers, she had opportunities that she could have jumped at and get to be a, uh, chief stewardess on, you know, better setups and bigger boats and whatnot. And she turned them down just so we can keep, um, so, so we can keep together. And, um, I, I did the same on one or two occasions and, uh, I don't regret absolutely anything about it because, in the end, we still got there, and in the end, we still have the relationship, and it was a wonderful ride. So, um, yeah. So, to answer your question, um, moving on from second officer to uh, chief officer, that was the captain that I worked with on a Navy. He asked me if I want to come back um, and join him on his new driver at the time, there was Lady Lara, there was a, a 60 meter this time, and he wanted someone temporary um, while his uh, second mate was had some, I think, uh, family issues back in New Zealand and whatnot. And I went and did that owner's trip, and um, in the end, that full-time guy didn't come back, so he asked me to stay for the summer. That was one of the summers that we did separate with Sonia again, and um, then was the chief officer at the time decided to move on at the end of that summer. So that's when I stepped up and there was an opening for Sonia to come on. And before you know it, we ended up staying four and a half years on that boat. And um, that was very close to a Mevi and, uh, you know, most interesting experiences in yachting because um, <laughs> four and a half years, you see a few things and you, you work with a few people. Yeah. Um, so that was actually, again, a very, um, a very good boat to work on. Um, very high standards from the owners, and uh, I would say very low crew turnover. Um, it was quite interesting. Out of fifteen crew, ten of us we were in couples on board. And there were five couples at some point, so 
the uh, the owners uh, quite proudly used to call it the love boat because it's um, there were five couples on board, um, ten crew out of fifteen. Yeah, there were relationships. Obviously, it worked. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know some captains are scared of getting couples because what if one doesn't work out, then you lose two people. Well, on that boat, it kind of really added stability and kept people on because they were happy. Um, so, yeah. You can always argue that the other way around, can't you? If it's, um, you know, if you lose one, then you lose two, sure. But then if you've got one good person that's happy and then you've got two good people that are happy, there's a lot, they're going to be both inclined to stay because um, it's hard to find couples positions. So it's um, exactly both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I, you know, history speaks for itself. They can go either way. But overall, if I look back at my 12 years, I would say it's done more good than no good having couples on board. I work with very stable couples. They were both very good in their jobs and they were happy. And um, that just made the, the whole team stronger and owners happier. So, yeah. What was the most interesting boat of your career so far? Um, it would probably have to be a Mavi, just for that reason. That um, It was interesting. Uh, such a big boat with very few crew to start with, and then seeing the crew come together and, and seeing how... And that was, if I think, from my professional point of view, I wasn't, in my early days, and even and now as well, I don't just... Uh, go through the days, I kind of tried to observe what's happening around and I was watching Marco putting his team together and, you know, so all that was just kind of learning at the same time, um, being exposed to a different... Um, Psychology yeah, degree yeah. was coming coming into play there. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, because you gotta you got to question everything around you, otherwise you don't move forward, you don't learn. And as I said to my guys, even now on the boats that, you know, Life is too short to make the same mistake twice. Um, there's so many new mistakes you can try out there. Don't make the same one yes. twice. <laughs> and and um, yeah, that was back then. I was just trying to um, get my head around what you need to do to um, to do it right. And uh, yeah, it was a was a milestone in my early days of yachting career. It reminds me of. Um... Islander, which uh, Abby and I took across the Atlantic with a crew years ago. Do you know the boat Islander at all? She used to be called the Other Woman. Yeah, I've seen her around. Um, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking um, about. Yeah, yeah, she's quite um, quite unmistakable. That's putting it uh, putting it nicely. But um, she's 59 meters. But we we picked her up in Toulon in the south of France and went across the Atlantic to Jacksonville in Florida. Then. Out there, we took the masts out of her and took the, the centerboards. She had a 12-ton and a 6-ton, I think, centerboard, um, four and a half. We took the centerboards out and took the rigs off and uh, we're in the process of converting her into a motorboat. Um, oh, wow. So that was, uh, that, was, that was an interesting project as well. She's going around nowadays looking like a motorboat. Um, well, she kind of <laughs> is a motorboat, but yeah oh wow no, i didn't know the, the whole sort of story about it yeah interesting we couldn't um sail across the atlantic unfortunately because the rig was so um it'd been just used and abused for so many years and hadn't been looked after and we just didn't know what was going to be safe or not um, in fact going across the gulf de leon we um we broke one of the d2 shrouds 
and uh, it just came loose and and fell down and was hanging just just short. I don't know how it missed it, but it was just clear of the swinging of the rotating radar. Oh, that would have been messy. Yeah, yeah. So we had to get another fitting made up, and um, yeah we got the boat across but then taking the sails off and they just hadn't been used for so long and all the hydraulics were shot and we had to wind the genoa out uh, manually and um, take it down and then take all the big radars and big sat domes because it was all from 25 years ago or something so the sat domes were huge you know and took it all took it all apart and loaded it onto a a barge and then sent it up the river Um, yeah it was quite a quite a process that's cool. Yeah, that's that's a sort of uh, variety that you get in yachting, isn't it? So if you do commercial boats, you kind of it's more standardised, I suppose, and it's the kind of same all, same all. In yachting, you can get anything from boats to owners to funny crew that you work with. It's it's quite a full, <laughs> full uh, how you call it? It's very colourful. It is. Yes. So recently you moved from working on big yachts to running a smaller 37-metre Pure Bliss, but on rotation. Uh, this allowed you time to pursue your other dream of owning your own cruising yacht. Can you tell us more about that? That has been uh, finally materialising after we've been talking about it for years. Um, I kept um, saying to, um, to Sonia that, you know, one of my best experiences on the water was that trip from Florida to New Zealand. And uh, as it is cruising life, it's uh, it's very interesting because you become uh, better at all these different um, things in life. You know, you become a better navigator, better plumber, a better <laughs> electrician, uh, uh, a more understandable um, cabin mate, I suppose, that the whole the whole thing you you have to deal with the smaller space and but at the same time it's just the beauty of being completely of being completely independent and after working um at sea for a number of years you don't have to worry about that sort of things as much because a lot of things are kind of second nature by now and you can focus more on um just having some time for yourself i think in on a small cruising boat that's what that's what um we found that it really makes a difference because working in Sapiat, as you know, it's it's very interesting and and it's very challenging and it's very full on and you're plugged in 365 days a year when you got a full time job and it's uh, you kind of forget to to do a few things every now and then just for yourself um, individually and, and as a couple and uh, you look back and bang, ten years have gone and uh, yeah, sure, you got to face the reality that you only got so many years left in the bag while you still have a bit of strength and you can get out there and and cross oceans and you know be on a sailboat or it may maybe a bit more physical than on a launch and um yeah you're just trying to maximize the time they have left and and combine it um I, we all want to keep being in in super yachts because we love the industry but um good to have a bit of time for itself as well and that's what our sailboat that we bought a year and a half ago that's what it's doing at the moment and um yeah well, the current job being the rotational gig it's fantastic it gives us that opportunity to combine the two well it was so lovely seeing you guys in scotland last year um on your own boat your dream having become a reality 
So what's next for 2019? We're shipping Pueblas from the US over to Northern Europe because the owners um, have been meaning to do this for for some time, um, they said, for a number of years. And the time has come now that they said, let's do this. That's, um, as you know, it, it's quite expensive to, to ship super yacht across and because we're not going to bring it across on our own bottom. Um, so there's a lot of money uh, in the shipping. But, um, yeah, we it's fantastic for the owners and us, the crew. We're just buzzing at the moment, knowing that we'll be um, hopefully cruising the Baltic in, in Norway this summer. So it comes – it's great for me personally and, and, and for Sonia as well because we've done Norway on our own boat last year. So we we have a clue. <laughs> of the places and um and it will be tremendous to go back obviously on a completely different setup now with the sail with the with the super yacht um but um it should be a, a really exciting summer 2019 for sure so why are you um shipping her across and not on, on her own bottom what size is pure bliss i don't remember she's only 37 it's a it's a 37 uh meter oh, I see. and uh, okay, my many yeah. document um Restricts me to 150 miles from land at the moment. That's what we got on the main document. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, it will have to be. Uh, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, without opening other cans of worms. And um, it's it's that size, 120 foot. It's that size that you can do a um, a crane on, crane off, or uh, you know the semi submersible ones that you drive it on and then they raise it. So we kind of we could do both. We in the end, we go in with a crane on um, often. Yeah, that's what we did with um, with Rob Roy as well. She was 41 metres and we did the same thing, two cranes. Yeah. Um, and they were both both on the boat and, yeah, it was absolutely fine. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's, that's what we're planning to do. So, yeah, hopefully late uh, May, early June, she'll be in northern Germany and start up there. Nice. So how do you find Benetti after working on Amels this quite a difference but you were, you were telling me about an engineer you worked with who had a great attitude towards them Dave Phillips whoever knows him work with them on Lady Lara and I remember we were in the shipyard doing quite a bit of warranty work there was a Bonetti as well 16 meter Bonetti and he was a second engineer at the time and everyone was moaning oh Bonetti's this Bonetti's that only Dave and he was a second engineer and he was doing as you know second engineer does most of the groundwork especially on a brand new with some warranty work he was always with his sleeves rolled up and covered in oil and whatever he had to do because he was doing a lot of the actual physical work and but he was never complaining about it and i one day asked him so dave hang on everyone benetti this benetti that and i never hear you moan about it and how come and he looked at me and said well what's the point is that going to make my life easier no is <laughs> what have i got to gain this yep. is what we have and if we moan less and focus more on getting the job done, uh, we'll just have a better boat and we've got to make it work. And this is what we have. She's not the best, she's not the worst, but this is what we have and we're going to make it work. That's and a so, great, you know what? great engineer. His chief now on a, I think on a 60 fat ship or something. Um, you know that. Yeah, those guys are going to go far. But uh, yeah, this, you know, you pick things like this from. The, the people they work with, the, the interesting characters they work with, and I still remember to this day. So 
yeah, I got my frustrations at times with little things on Hubless, Zabanetti, but in the end, I'm like, just remember what Dave said. <laughs> this is what we have, and we, if we fix it and we put time on it, we're going to make it better, and it's not the best, but it's definitely not the worst, and, you know, just fine. What's the one item that you'd never go to see without? <laughs> There's a... That's a very interesting question. There's so much physically. If you look at a particular object or something, it's it's hard to define that because there's so much that goes into it when you go to see. So I hope I'm not giving you a tricky uh, answer here, but I'll say it's probably manpower. Oh, that's a good answer, yeah. Whether that's, you know yourself only that goes out to sea and say like these guys these guys they're doing now um the golden globe um or you got a 70 crew team on board it's still manpower because it's manpower that drives machinery is manpower that fixes stuff and is manpower that drives the spirit so i'll have to say manpower yeah yeah that's a good one i was just thinking of like my phone full of podcasts to listen to or something very mundane so yeah Manpower is a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I found that if I you like got it. if you got the the right the, the right people, whether it's one, two crew, or many, you're kind of self sufficient. As long as obviously you got a boat that floats, you can you can fix just about anything, and yeah, you can deal with it. What's the most crazy or interesting request that you've had from an owner or guest that you could talk about? It's probably nothing uh, radical. You know, you hear some stories. In in yachting, I haven't had anything uh, too extreme. Probably the one of the more interesting ones. Again, you know, it's it's mild compared to other people's stories. But I remember one owner um, of a very known boat. She actually asked me to pour some vinegar in the sea to keep the jellyfish away. That was a bit confusing. Right. Yes. Yes. There was. Um, we should tell the Australians. Apparently, they'd um, appreciate that tip at the moment. Yeah, I think <laughs> they, they could probably import some maybe more it doesn't vinegar. It might, it might help um, <laughs> with a box jellyfish that I have there. But yeah, that was. Um, I would never forget that one. So the question is, did you do it anyway? Um, of course, you have to do it. Um, but then you know you try to politely explain the. Eff- how efficient that process is. Um, yeah, that was a funny one. Very memorable, that's for sure. Yes. So where do you see yourself? Obviously, uh, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have pictured, I guess, being where you are today. What do you see in five years' time? Are you going to have retired and be sailing on your little sailing boat somewhere? Or I wish I could. That would be lovely. Um <laughs> But at the same time, with the with the setup that we have now, uh, it's fun. Even being at work, it's it's really good fun. Because um, yeah, we work for wonderful owners at the moment, and uh, an amazing team on board. And you know, having the rotation now, we can still do what we love and what we think we're good at, and also catch up on some sailing time on our own boat. That's it's really ideal at the moment. I'd love to. I'd love to do the Northwest Passage with our own sailboat. After having done Svalbard last year and getting a taste of of the Arctic and 
going through ice a little bit down the line would be good when when we feel we we're ready i definitely love to go up to greenland first and have a look there so yeah i don't know if that will happen necessarily in five years but um that's that's quite a biggie to do while we have a sailboat i think that would be um that'd be fantastic well it's getting easier each year isn't it so well not this year um one boat was lost i think an ovni was crushed and although that's right two boats yeah, i think yeah. one one went one from the east and one from the west managed to, to pull through but a lot of boats never yeah. never managed to make it through this year because uh, it never opened up there was a national geographic article that i used to have at home about uh, a couple of guys they must have been french i'm sure that um took a hobie cat and took it through the northwest passage and they dragged it across the ice and almost sailed it across the ice at times um and yeah, and through the water, just a Hobie cat. <laughs> well, I suppose you don't, with the Hobie cat, you don't risk uh, getting trapped by ice because you just slide it on the ice. The um, the question is, how much protection will the Hobie cat give you against um, a polar bear? But that's a different, <laughs> you know, look at Mike Horn. He's done the whole Antarctic from one side to the other, pulling a, a sled behind him. So, uh, I suppose, yeah, that would be just covering both bases. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about them. Well, Caitlin, it's been a pleasure chatting. So let's wrap up the podcast there. And um, yeah, just thank you very much for coming on and um, chatting with me about your life. It's been great. Look, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. And it's always um, lovely to catch up with you guys because you've got a huge amount of stories. You told me a couple last time we met that nearly jaw-dropping uh, stuff like when you got picked up from the side of the boat when you when you fell over there was yeah there was uh yeah, yeah that would have been a, a moment in life um so uh yeah it's lovely chatting with you every time and uh you know what doing this podcast is um it's fantastic because i listen to the other two that you've done with the other guys and I'm sure you got many more to come and we all learn from each other and you and you hear stories and it makes the world a better place you know it's connecting people and so well done you nice no, great it's um it's just nice to hear stories we met doing our chief mates together i think didn't we uh it was, oh no our masters master five, masters 500 yeah yeah it would have been five years ago but yeah mine just expired in december <laughs> right well there you go that's that that's it then yeah We've met various times um, since then, and and spent time together on your boat in Scotland and around the place. And yet, you know, some of these stories, obviously, you, you just don't necessarily get round to. And it's um, so it's really interesting to have the uh, platform of the podcast to um, yeah encourage a bit more conversation. It's good. Yeah, excellent. I look forward to um, to listening to Antares. He's an interesting character. Definitely, super. All right. Well, I'm going to finish the podcast there. So thanks, Caden. That's great. Thanks for listening to the Your Skipper podcast from yourskipper.co.uk. For show notes or to contact Cameron directly, please visit yourskipper.co.uk.